multiply it in your hands, Father. That the lost would be found. And that your kingdom would be seen and experienced on this earth as it is in heaven, Lord. And that we would be your ambassadors. We thank you for it, Father. In your name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's give. my gear to bring up. I don't have a Stanley mug yet. I need one of those. Those are the cool things now. No Stanley mug. We'll get there someday. Well, today we are kicking off a new series. We are uh, we're going into a series on the life of David. And uh, I'm really excited this about this. I love um, preaching expositorily, but I especially like preaching through narrative. God, God loves to connect to people through story. Um, if you look at the Bible, the Bible is primarily a story. Um, and, and look how, how much story there is outside of the poetry and law. You've got mostly story that's there. Jesus, how did he teach people usually? Through parables, through stories. Stories connect to us. They, uh, I remember stories a whole lot better than I remember just a big list of data. Um, some people are just really big into they could spew off a whole bunch of like baseball statistics to you. Not me. I'm, I, I'm not that style. I hear story. I can re- recite a story back to you or get it pretty close, you know. And so I think God knows that stories connect with our hearts. Um, and so over the next five weeks, we're going to be walking through the story of David. David's story is said to be the longest narrative of one single character in all of ancient literature. He's a very important character. He's a vital piece of the biblical arc of God's redemption for humanity. And so uh, if, if you look all the way back to Jesus, Jesus isn't called the son of Abraham or the son of Jacob, right? Who's he called? He's called the son of David. David's an important character in the Bible. And, and you think about all the things he's done in the Psalms. Uh, David wrote many of the prose and the music that still informs our music today. You would be shocked. When you read through Psalms, I, I one time, when I did a Bible reading, I had a Bible where I decided to put a little musical note next to a section of a poetry that David wrote that's a song I know. that We put our own music to, but I was like, this, this isn't a song I know. And it's just covered with musical notes because I've heard that in a song. I've heard that in a song. His poetry informs our theology and our understanding of God and our understanding understanding of suffering and our understanding of worship and praise. Um, it's, it's, it just is amazing how we take all these samplings from David's worship and, and now it informs our understanding. Something else what we're going to see in the coming weeks is that scripture is brutally honest. It does not sugarcoat the stories. It doesn't try to paint people as better than they really were or anything like that. It details every single part of David's failings. Because uh, let's be honest, people are mixed bags. Um, uh, but we tend to either, I think what's interesting is we tend to, when our culture, maybe this has been forever, we either exalt people as demigods or when they fail, we cancel them with a prejudice. You ever notice that you've got an athlete or an actor or someone in modern society. That's just like, everybody thinks they're the cat's pajamas. And then you hear about something in their personal life or something they've done. And then they're goners. And, and we, we have this, um, we've seen this from celebrities today, or we talk about this problems through history. We look at our nation's founding fathers. Uh, many of our founding fathers were slave owners. 
Um, some were philanderers, and, and you've got these stories that are kind of incongruous because we talk about how we're a nation formed on the principles of Christianity, but there's people that don't have lives that line up in all the ways we say they should. And so, well, let me tell you, people's lives are mixed bags. And so, uh, how do we navigate the complexities of being human? David's a great way. David's a great study. And so David's character is just that. He's very, very human. There's an earthiness to David's life that's really uh, refreshing in his story and challenging and kind of uh, problematic. Sometimes I go, how quickly would we just forgive someone who has someone murdered so they can have an affair with their spouse? Uh, but if you think about the, the natural, just the naturalness of David's life, outside of the story of David and Goliath, there's not really a miraculous or supernatural element to David's life. And you look at all the other stories of like the prophets and the kings and the miracles God would do and delivering them from like opposing armies or, or you know, doing all these miraculous things with David. It was kind of just an, a natural life, an earthiness to his life that, that you go, he lived a normal person's life. And so um, Eugene Peterson, a theologian who wrote a book called Leap Over a Wall, wrote this about David. He said this. David's isn't an ideal life, but an actual life. The David story, like most other Bible stories, presents us not with a polished ideal to which we aspire, but with a rough-edged actuality in which we see humanity being formed. He, he goes on to say he has little wisdom to pass on to us on how to live successfully. He was an unfortunate parent and an unfaithful husband. But David's importance is not in his morality or his military prowess, but in his experience and witness to God. So this is, this is important for us to understand. As we study these texts, it's not meant to be read moralistically. Uh, this isn't like Aesop's fables, where you go, here's the moral of the story, thus this is how we need to just kind of be like David. Um, we can't successfully live out... Uh, our lives as Christ followers by trying to exercise what I would call behavior modification. Has anybody ever heard that term, behavior modification? Just do better. I need to just do better. How many of us have ever had something we're failing at and we just go, just do better. Stop messing up like that. And, uh, and sometimes we get into this behavior modification mindset where we just go, okay, I need to do this, this, and this. And then we read more in the Bible and go, oh, and add this to the list. And oh, add this to the list. And, and this, is, this is kind of, I think we have a tendency to want to interject ourselves into the text. To make ourselves the protagonist in the Bible story. You know what I mean? Make ourselves the, the I'm David. I'm David. And so we read this, and, and let me tell you, David's not even the, the, the hero in his own story. Let alone us. Neither, is, neither are you. Neither am I. We are not the hero in David's story. God is. And so this is all about how God deals with people like David. It's all a story about how God deals with people like you, how he deals with people like me, who are mixed bags, who are broken in different ways, and yet he loves us. And so this is, I got to tell you, there's some days that we're killing it. There's some days where I'm killing it. And, but the majority of the days, I am a wretched failure. I look back and go, oh man, I blew it there and I blew it there. I, there's no th nothing better than waking up at 2 a.m. remembering all the ways you messed up that last day, you know? That's just, you go, well, I guess I'll just lay here for a few hours thinking about that. And yet God still uses us and has a calling for us. And so after Israel's exodus from Egypt, we're going to give a little context and backstory here. By the way, <laughs> forgive me. 
I heard this, and it, it's it's true. It's a little it, it's a it's a little uh, edgy, but it, it it actually rings really true. Um, the importance of context. I saw someone mention this the other day. It said the term butt dial and the term booty call technically mean the same thing if you were to a thousand years down the road read those together and you'd say i don't know the difference between these this is why context is so vitally important when we read the bible because we're reading text that you're going okay if i take this and literally as this happened or these words how do i understand it but we need to understand it in the greater context of what's going on in society and how people would understand it do you hear me on that i I apologize for kind of the, the edginess of that statement but do you hear where i'm going with that It's important we understand the context of what's happening here, what God's doing in this story. So, after Israel exits from Egypt, God's brought them into the promised land. They were being ruled by a group of people called the Judges. And these people were were kind of, they weren't like the presidents or kings. They were who people would come to if they had an issue or God would raise them up if the people needed to be delivered. And then there were also uh, people that were called uh, the prophets. And they they would speak on behalf of God. Prophecy doesn't just mean telling the future. It means to speak on behalf of God. And so the prophets and the judges were raised up. And so Israel was in essence being led as a theocracy. Theocracy meaning God led through people who spoke on his behalf. And so it was being led in this way. And Samuel becomes the last prophet leader for the people of Israel. Until the people of Israel said, we don't want this anymore. We want a king like everybody else around us. We want to be like everybody else. Nobody has ever said that growing up. I want to be like everybody else, right? And so they said, we want to be like the nations around us. So if you have your Bibles, we're going to primarily be in the book of 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel, we'll start in chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. 1 Samuel, chapter 8, verses 6 and 7. It says this, But when they said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord. And the Lord told him, Listen to all that the people are saying to you. It is not you they have rejected, but they have rejected me as their king. And so Samuel, I'm sure, felt some rejection because he was the figurehead seen as the leader. But God says, they're not rejecting you. They're rejecting me. And so Israel chose their first king. God allowed them to do this. 1 Samuel chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, if you move ahead a little bit. 1 Samuel 9, verses 1 and 2 says... There was a wealthy, influential man named Kish from the tribe of Benjamin. He was the son of Abiel, the son of Zeror, the son of Becherath, the son of Aphia, of the tribe of Benjamin. And his son Saul was the most handsome man in Israel, head and shoulders taller than anyone else in the land. So Saul had all the right stuff. He was a stud. All right. He he had the looks. He had the stature. He came from an influential family. That's why they list the lineage here. Uh, they wanted to, to, them to know that he came from a strong line of people. And so things started off well. Saul was the right guy. He had the look of a king. He had the stature of a king. He was everything they wanted. But things took a turn very quickly. He rejected God's direction and the the. The real place of Saul's heart was revealed. He did things his own way. He was arrogant. He was disobedient. And in 1 Samuel 13, Saul presents offerings he was explicitly told not to make. Samuel says, don't make this offering. And Saul was like, this offering? You know, and he's making the offering. And, uh, and here's what Samuel told Saul after he made that uh, unauthorized offering in chapter 13, verse 14. So Samuel says to him, 
But now your kingdom must end. For the Lord has sought out a man after his own heart. The Lord has already appointed him to be the leader of his people because you have not kept the Lord's command. So Saul has been notified, you are not the guy anymore. And later though, Saul goes on to commit more sins against God and his calling. He was commanded to completely destroy a group of people called the Amalekites who were a depraved evil people. And he was not just destroy the people, but the flocks and the herds and everything else. But rather than obey, Saul kept the best of the plunder. So once again, Samuel had to confront him. In chapter 15, verses 19 through 23, if you jump ahead there, it says this. Why haven't you obeyed the Lord? Why did you rush for the plunder and do what was evil in the Lord's sight? But I did obey the Lord, Saul insisted. I carried out the mission he gave me. I brought back King Agag, but I destroyed everything else. Then my troops brought in the best of the sheep, the goats, the cattle, and the plunder to sacrifice to the Lord, your God, in Gilgal. But Samuel replied, what is more pleasing to the Lord, your burnt offerings and sacrifices, or your obedience to his voice? Listen, obedience is better than sacrifice, and and submission is better than the offering, than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as sinful as witchcraft and stubbornness as bad as worshiping idols. So because you've rejected the command of the Lord, he has rejected you as king. So Saul kind of obeys God. He wipes out a lot of the Amalekites. He wipes out a lot of their herds, but there's some pretty nice stuff there too. So do you know what he does? He keeps some of it. But can I tell you, partial, partial obedience is disobedience in God's eyes. Partial obedience is disobedience. Sometimes we are experts at rationalizing our choices at being somewhat obedient to God. Because then we can point to the parts we did obey. I think that's what Saul did, right? He's like, but I did kind of obey. And we're experts at, at rationalizing why we didn't fully obey God. But let me tell you, partially obeying God is not full obedience. And, and so God calls him out on this and he says, because of that, I have rejected you as king. Here's what happens in verse 27. So as Samuel turned to go, Saul tried to hold him back, and he tore the hem of his robe. You can see the desperation in Saul here as Samuel's leaving. He grabs his robe, and he tears it. And Samuel said to him, The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to someone else who is better than you. That's a brave thing to say to someone who's king. But he tells him... There's going to be someone better than than you. And this, as you can imagine, causes Saul great anguish because he knew the kingdom at some point was going to be wrenched away from him. It was going to be taken from his hands. And uh, this would actually cause a lot of paranoia in Saul, which will be manifest later in our story. You're going to see Saul, who was constantly paranoid about the kingdom being taken away, about people's loyalties and who they like and who's, who's popular and all these things, because he knows God has taken away his blessing of him as king. And so Samuel was also upset about this. Sometimes we just think, well, Saul was upset. Did you know Samuel was really upset over all this happened too? Um, Continuing on in verse 35, it says this. The Lord said to Samuel, how long will you grieve over Saul since I have rejected him from being king over Israel? So Samuel was brokenhearted over him. Fill your horn with oil and go for I will send you to Jesse the Bethlehemite for I provided for myself a king among his sons. I like that phrase. I have provided for myself. Not providing for Israel. I'm not providing for my people. I'm providing for myself, God says. Did you know God is working out his plans? We like to paint ourselves into that. God's working out my plans. He's helping me out. He's going to throw in some, you know, some, some of his magic powder and then we'll get things going. God is working out his plans. 
And so God says, I'm going to work for myself this plan that I have. I've got someone that I have in, in mind and in store. And even when the people around us are failing us and the world is failing around us, God is at work for his plans. Sometimes we measure it by what we feel is success, by how we feel things are going for us. But let me tell you, God is working out his plans of success. He's already at work. And so Samuel did do what the Lord commanded. In Samuel, 1 Samuel 16, verses 4 through 5, it says, So Samuel did as the Lord instructed, and when he arrived at Bethlehem, the elders of the town came trembling to meet him. What's wrong, they asked. Do you come in peace? These people are terrified. Because Samuel is both feared and revered. Do you remember? Why would, why would it be scary that a prophet comes? Is he coming in with a big sword and a spear or anything like that? Do you remember what we read when we read the minor prophets? When the minor prophets would, would, te- would prophesy, usually it was a doom and gloom, bad things are coming, right? So when the people of Bethlehem see Samuel coming, they're going, oh no, what did we do? Are you, are you coming to, to bring down fire and brimstone on us? What is going on? And so the people are terrified. Um, a prophet showing up is bad news. But here's what Samuel responds. He said, yes, Samuel replied, I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Purify yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then Samuel performed the purification rite for Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice too. And when they arrived, Samuel took one look at Eliab and thought, surely this is the Lord's anointed. So the first of Jesse's sons walks in the door and he's impressive, right? He, is, he, he takes a look at Eliab and he is the starting quarterback for Bethlehem High. He is like the dude. He's, he's Saul 2.0. He's tall. He's got the it factor. He's got persona. And he, he just commands the room. And uh, let me tell you, I mean, if, if Samuel himself, who is the prophet of God, can be impressed, he must have been pretty impressive. But let me also say, we may be mesmerized, but God isn't. We may be, we be caught, caught up in all the, the emotion and, the, and, and who this could be, but God isn't thrown off by this. Like Saul, Eliab was measured highly in their economy, but not in God's economy. God has a different economy of how he measures people. And so Samuel looks at him, he goes, this is the guy, but God has something else in mind. Verse 7, but the Lord said to Samuel, don't judge by his appearance or his height, for I have rejected him. The Lord doesn't see things the way you see them. People judge by outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. Think about how much time we spend managing our perception to other people. I was thinking about this, and I spend a lot I mean, we curate how we are perceived. It may be in how we dress. It may be in how we uh, present ourselves intellectually, in the car we drive, in the home that we keep, in the people we associate with. We care about people's opinions, whether you say it or not. We care about what people think about us. And the the reality is people will see the you that you want them to see, but the Lord sees the real you. People are going to see the the you that you want them to see. We can put out something, a product that's really impressive. But God sees the real you. It doesn't matter how many followers you have on whatever network or social thing is going on. God sees the real you. And see, our efforts to portray an ideal that we can't meet uh, fall so short. And God sees right through it. And he sees our hearts. Just as an aside, I mentioned social networks. I just want to tell you this. Don't let social media rush you. No one is posting their failures or their worst days on that. Um, Sometimes we feel like there's such pressure because of what we see on on these things. But even the 
best moments are usually framed and posted, you know, put in just the right perspective. So don't let those things tell you, inform you on how you should be uh, holding up. No one posts, you know, I'm eating granola now. You know, those kinds of things of the everyday minutia of life. Everyone walks through life. Everyone puts their pants on the same way. You know, all those things we go through. But let me tell you, God sees who we really are. It doesn't matter what we portray out there. It doesn't matter what we show the world. God sees who we really are. And our purpose is to please God, not people. Your job is to please God, not people. I've read this about being a leader. It said that the leader of an orchestra has to be willing to turn his back on the crowd in order to lead. And in the same way, our goal should be to please God. And that might mean not pleasing a lot of people. Because he sees the heart. And so going on in verse 8, it says, Then Jesse told his son Abinadab to step forward. He's like, oh, I can't believe you said no to that guy, but I've got a close second. So he sends in Abinadab, and he walks in front of Samuel. I think it's like a runway. It must be like a runway. And so next up we've got Abinadab, and Abinadab. And so Abinadab comes out, and he walks in front of Samuel. But Samuel said, this is not the one the Lord has chosen. And next Jesse summoned Shimea. But Samuel said, neither is this one the Lord has chosen. In the same way, all seven of Jesse's sons were presented to Samuel. But Samuel said to Jesse, the Lord has not chosen any of these. It's interesting. Eventually, he stops even naming names. It's just one after the other passing by. Nope. Mm -mm. Any others? Nope. That's not the one. And it says, he said, it's none of these. Then Samuel asked, are these all the sons you have? So, so Jesse continues parading his sons by Samuel, and eventually, you know, they, their names stop even getting mentioned, and Samuel asks, is that all? And the text even says here, I don't know if you have it in your Bible, it says all seven of Jesse's sons were presented. The problem was there weren't just seven. There was this one that wasn't even counted. They didn't even count him as one of the seven. And so that's, that's kind of harsh. You know, I, I, I've heard, I, I heard, I would never say this about my kids, but I once heard someone say, um, when they introduced themselves to me, they said, oh, hi, my name's such and such. I've got one love, I've got, I, I've got a lovely wife and one wonderful son and one other son. And uh, I know, I'm burning them back now. I had to. So it, it, it's, it's bizarre that he said, I've got seven sons. And he's like, really, only seven? Okay, I do have eight. He didn't even want to admit the other one. That was out in the field. And so they, there's, this, there's this other son that wasn't even counted. And so, uh, so, so he says, there is still the youngest, Jesse replied, but he's out in the fields watching the sheep and the goats. Send for him at once, Samuel said. We will not sit down to eat until he arrives. And so they don't even sit. He says, we're going to stand here until you bring us that last son. And so they stand there and wait. Now, the word youngest, when, when Jesse says the youngest, it's tough to translate. I don't know if you have, any of you have in your Bible a little notation by the word youngest, but it's a word that doesn't translate easily to English. You'd think youngest just is youngest. But it actually uh, it doesn't just mean youngest, but also kind of means smallest um, or the least. The best way we could probably translate it, and it's kind of mean, is the runt. He says, we've got the runt. The, the little squirmy young kid that nobody likes, you know, he's out there. We keep him in the field. And so um, he's out with the sheep. He's in the hills. He's the youngest. He has the lowest job in societal structure. At that very moment, David was roaming in the same hills and fields that a thousand years later, angels would sing to this, the shepherds that David was to proclaim the birth of Jesus. These shepherds were the lowest in society. God chose to go to the shepherds. I think he saw a little bit of David down there in those shepherds. 
And so David's out there doing the, the, the lowest job in society, the, the job that where you're following around the dumbest animals you can find. And, and he's out there, and God says, I'm going to bring in this outsider. God loves to work with the most unlikeliest of value people. God loves to work with, uh, maybe, maybe all you've ever wanted, though, is to be like some, anyone else, anyone other than you are. Maybe, maybe you feel like you're David and you've, you're the smallest, you're the runt, you're, you're you, you know, I just wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. <laughs> you say, I wish I was something else, anybody else, something that I'm not. I wish I, I, I had this color hair. I wish I had this job. I wish I had this income. I wish I had their looks, their charisma, their smarts, whatever it might be. You may say, I feel so unqualified. Or maybe you even say, I feel so disqualified. And there's so many reasons we say, uh, I shouldn't count. But let me tell you, God sees what the world overlooks. The world overlooks, even his own father overlooked him. He brought everyone into the house. Everyone got purified for this event, except for David. Even his own dad said, you're not the one, but God saw him. In 2 Chronicles 16, 9, it says, The eyes of the Lord search over the whole earth in order to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. Remember what God told Samuel. People look at the outward experience, the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. So God was roaming over the earth looking and he sees David out in these fields. Now it's easy to look devoted when we're in public, but how do you do when you're in areas unseen? Because that's where God saw David, right? He was in a place that was unseen. It's really easy to when we're in church right now, be like, yes, Lord, right? And we're, we're feeling like the presence of God and it's easy to show that. But what do we live When people don't see us, you see, there's nothing that's going to test our humility like invisibility. There's nothing that's going to test our, our, our resolve and our character like when no one is applauding. And so whatever season you may be in, maybe you're frustrated in your family situation right now or your living situation, the home you have. Maybe you feel unfulfilled in your singleness or maybe you feel lost in a crowd. Maybe you're struggling with intense loneliness or perhaps you're in an unrewarding job or maybe you have uh, unemployment that's really frustrating you. No matter where you are, God is taking this moment and he's shaping you and he sees you. And this is what he was doing with David. And so David is seen in this field. God knows he's there and Samuel calls for him. And so he was sent for him and he brought him in. And the Bible says now he was ruddy and he had beautiful eyes and was handsome. And the Lord said, arise, anoint him for this is he. And then Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the midst of his brothers. And the spirit of the Lord rushed upon David from that day forward. And Samuel rose up and went to Ramah. David was anointed in the midst of his brothers. Can you imagine the tension in that room? <laughs> I think God likes elevating people in the presence of their detractors. Um, I think God gets us just a special pleasure out of lifting up the weak right in front of the strong. And, uh, and this is what God does because he's the God of the underdogs. And one of my favorite portions of this passage is when he was anointed, the spirit of the Lord, it says, rushed upon David. It wasn't subtle. It wasn't, it wasn't just like he had a little tingly feeling. Or anything like that. But it was, it was God's spirit and power. I, I, it sounds like he like rushed upon him like it tackled him. God's presence came and just overwhelmed him. It wasn't either a single experience event, right? It wasn't like we were at a camp or a youth convention or a special service and we felt that moment and then it was done. It says from that day forward. 
The presence of God was evident and rushed over him from that day forward. It's interesting because it's juxtaposed. I don't have this in your notes, but you can read it. In the very next verse, God's spirit is being lifted from Saul. So here we have the presence of God rushing upon David, and it's being lifted from Saul. But what happens after David is anointed? He's thrown on their shoulders and carried triumphantly into the capital city. And Saul is deposed, and they put the crown upon his head, and he ruled for 60 years. I made that all up. Don't, don't let that confuse the real story. He went back out into the field with the sheep. He had this, I can't imagine the emotion of this moment, this beautiful moment of being recognized. But David went back out into the field with the sheep. And let me tell you, even after David knew he was going to be king someday, he had to go back into the process. We may know what God has called us to. He may have called us out of something and laid a desire upon our heart. The spirit of God is upon us, but yet there's still a period of preparation. And this period may take years. See, God used those years in the hills watching the sheep to shape David. He prepared him as a musician. He's out there with his harp learning some cool new chords. And he needed that because later David would be brought into the very presence of the king to be able to play the harp for him. God used his time out there to develop him as a warrior. Because David was able to face Goliath, but only after he had said, I fought a lion and a bear. He learned how to use a sling. He learned how to use weapons. He learned how to defend himself. He prepared him as a survivor in the wilderness. He's living out in the hills. Um, David needed that because for a good portion of his life, he would live in caves and on the lamb, running from people who wanted to kill him. And so God used that time to prepare him as that. God used him in that time to prepare him as a worshiper. To worship God when there's not a big crowd of people singing with you. To worship God even when there's not an amazing band that's jammed behind you. But just when you're alone with the Lord. Alone and and literally in creation. And to say, I am going to be a worshiper God. Where I'm at, I'm going to worship. But God needs to develop it in us. At the start of the 16th century, the Florence Cathedral. This is the Florence Cathedral in Italy. Not the one right over on the coast here. The Florence Cathedral in Italy had a, a tricky unfinished project, unfinished project on its hands. They had a, there's a document that's, that, that we have from 1501 that refers to this massive, barely begun statue that was ordered in 1464. And, and this uh, document reads, it says, A certain man of marble, badly blocked out and laid on its back, is in the courtyard. This chunk of marble sat there abandoned by the artist. The artist's name was Agostino. And almost immediately, it was declined by the next artist, Antonio Rossellino, pardon my uh, Italian, due to the poor quality of the marble. So it was rejected by two sculptors. So without a sculptor, it just sat there. And it was too expensive to haul and throw away. It was massive. And so it just sat out in the elements for a quarter of a century. But in the summer of 1501, a new sculptor was found. It was a 26-year-old young man by the name of Michelangelo. And in 1501, Michelangelo finished his work. And the artist and writer Giorgio Vasari would later describe it as bringing back to life one who was dead. Michelangelo said, I created a vision of David in my mind and I simply carved away everything that was not David. And I look at this and I think of our story of David and God seeing through the exterior to the heart. 
And God's process on David was to take off everything that he didn't want David to be, everything that was not righteous in David, to start peeling it away. And yes, David would have many massive failures coming up, but he was drawing out what he wanted to see and to be used by him. And so there was a season of development and growth that he had in David in the same way in your life. uh, You may say, I feel like I've been rejected. It could be very personal. It could be a spouse. It could be a parent. It could be a family member. It could be any number of things. You could be rejecting yourself. You can't look at yourself in the mirror. You say, I want to reject myself. But God sees to the heart and he says, I want to draw out something beautiful that's in there. I want to take away everything that's not intended to be uh, what, what the man or woman I've called you to be. So this morning he's saying, engage in the process. You may be in the fields. You may be alone. You may be isolated. But what am I doing in this season? Can we bow our heads and close our eyes for a moment? If you're in this room and you say, I have been in the wilderness. I feel like I've been overlooked. I feel like my time has not come. I just feel like I'm spinning my wheels and and I don't know if I'm seen. Let me tell you, the God who made you has seen you and knows you and has called you. But are we willing to engage with the process that he has for us? What's he stirring in you? What's he doing in you today? Lord, I pray over our church. That as there are those in this room who are engaging in the process of perhaps really painful time of of God whittling away the portions that he says, this isn't what I've got. This isn't what, what, what I, I've called you to be. And, and some of those things are being pulled away. And right now you are drawing us to be the people, the men and women that you've called us to be. I pray that you would change our hearts. Just as in, in the book of Ezekiel, you say you want to give a, take that a stubborn heart and replace it with a heart of flesh. Lord, I pray for those that have had uh, stony, stubborn hearts, that you would soften those hearts, that we would yield them to you be molded and made more into your image. We thank you, God, that you are the God of the underdogs, that you draw us up, that you call us to things bigger than ourselves, but it starts with trust in you. We give you praise. Amen. With our heads still bowed and eyes closed, there's one last thing I want to mention, and that is this. A thousand years later, I mentioned that another young nobody would appear in the hills of Bethlehem. He was the new and the better David. Where David failed, he never failed. Look at the parallels between David and Jesus. He would rise up from obscurity, from the stump of Jesse. God's spirit would rush upon him. When Jesus was baptized, the spirit of God came upon him and said, this is my son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. He too would rise up and become a great king, but he would not fail in any of the areas that David did. And so the message of David is this. Don't look to David. Don't try to be David. But look to the one that David points to. And that is Jesus. So today, if you've never given your life to Jesus, let me tell you, it's not about changing our 
actions enough to be a good enough person. We can't, we can't just correct our, our bad behavior enough, modify our bad behavior enough to be a good enough person. The Bible is clear that all of us have sinned and that makes us fall short of God's glory. And when we fall short of God's glory, God can have nothing to do with anything that's sinful. And so there's a separation between us and God. But yet God offers reconciliation and that's only through Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God who came and died for us. We talked about that today when we received communion. And so the way we can know God is only one way, and that's through the sacrifice of Jesus. He came and he died for us in our place. He didn't just die for us, he died instead of us. He took death upon himself, sin upon himself, so that we could be made right with God. So this morning, if you want to be made right with God, I want to give you this opportunity. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. If you say, Pastor Brent... I've had failure in my life. I've made choices that have gone opposed to God and I want to be made right before Him. I want to receive the forgiveness of Jesus. I want to pray that prayer. Will you raise your hand and raise it high? I want to pray with you. Raise it high. Thank you, yes. Thank you, thank you. I see those hands. Thank you. You can put your hands down. Right now, church, we're going to pray together. This is a prayer. It's an affirmation of the position of our heart. It's not a magical set of words. It's a statement of faith. And so we're going to pray this together out loud, all of us in this room, whether you've prayed this prayer before many times or this is your first time, pray it with conviction with me. Say this with me. Dear Jesus, I believe you are the Son of God. I believe you came to save me. You lived a perfect life where I could not. You took my sin and you took my failure to the cross and you offer me forgiveness. You're alive today and you offer me life. So now I receive it. I make you my king and I make you my Lord. From this day forward, I don't serve myself. I serve you. Jesus, you are my God. In your name I pray. Amen. Amen. The Bible says that heaven celebrates with those that made that decision today to say, I'm going to follow you, Jesus. And we celebrate with you as well. If you would, would you let me know you made that decision? Fill out a second connection card if you like, or better yet, come have a conversation with me. Let me know about the decision you made today, and we would love to pray with you and get you started on the journey of following Jesus. God bless you, New Life. Have a wonderful, wonderful day. We will see you in life groups this week, all through the week, Monday through Thursday. We've got life groups going on. God bless you, New Life.